So we're going to start uh, a new series today on the, the Sermon on the Mount, um, uh, be, particularly the, the sermon that Jesus preached uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, next week, we'll start the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, but today, I want to set the context for that because um, we, we read this, you know, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we see it in the Bible, right? And so we read it as words on a page. We forget that it was actually something that Jesus spoke to a particular group of people at a particular place in a particular time. Uh, and that's, um, that's what's, and it's good for us to think a little bit about that and try to draw some connections uh, between what was happening, what Jesus was doing, that crowd, those disciples who were there, and um, who we are uh, today. And so uh, that's what we're going to do this morning to try to connect uh, those, uh, those uh, well, that historical period, that crowd, with this historical period, and this crowd. So that's, uh, uh, that's what we're going to uh, try, well, I'm going to try to do that this morning. So um, in light of that, uh, before I read the text, let me pray, and then uh, we'll, I'll read the text to you. Lord, as we come to you today, we are uh, reminded of uh, the fact that you are our teacher, uh, you are the one who sees us, just as you saw the crowd that day. And so I pray, Lord, that you would see each of us today, but also, Lord, that you would see us as your body, your church, that we belong to you, we belong to one another, uh, and uh, that as you sat there on that mountain that day and uh, talked about your kingdom, uh, that as you loved that crowd, as you loved your disciples, uh, we would have a fresh taste of your love to us today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Matthew 5, verses 1 uh, and 2, text is in the bulletin, also up on uh, the screens behind me. Uh, this is God's Word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So I don't I don't know what you think about the Sermon on the Mount. I know uh, if you grew up in the church or around the church at all, you're familiar with that. You probably got a Bible at some point in time that had a picture of Jesus, you know, sitting, regally robed, people gathered around him, listening, paying attention, you know, and it was just, it's just a beautiful scene. Or if you've seen the Jesus movies, all those Jesus movies where Jesus is, you know, talking and there's great music in the background and everybody's sitting there with, you know, light shining out of their faces and that kind of stuff, just loving it. Nobody's looking at their phone, you know, no, nobody's mad, nobody's bored, Nobody's frustrated. It's just the best thing ever, right? There are no flies or mosquitoes, you know, no places where sheep or cows had been. You know, it's just, just, a, just, a, just a beautiful, beautiful thing, Right? Boy, I wish it was like that, and I wish I lived in that world. I wish you lived in that world. I wish you weren't bored. I wish you weren't cynical. I wish you weren't angry. I wish you weren't tired. I wish you weren't discouraged, because I'm all those things. 
So as we look at this today, I think it's worth our while to put this, these words in a little bit of context because otherwise they can just become this kind of pie-in-the-sky religious talk that has no real impact on us because the thing you have to see about this is, is that Jesus is loving his church, loving his people by saying these words. These words are full of love, Right? Um, and, and so that is one of the things that I, I, we're going to keep, keep revisiting as we, uh, as, as we look at this. Because one of the things that occurs to me, and I, I get criticized for this all the time, and I don't really care. That's one of the things that happens once you hit 60. You're like, yeah, you know, people have been saying that to me for 40 years. So uh, you kind of get used to it. Is um, We don't think enough about the fact that Jesus loves us. And that his love is the dynamic of the people of God. One of, the, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is, what does it mean to be a part of the church? What does it mean to be a part of the people of God? And I've gone back and I look at our five membership questions, you know, the questions that people answer when they stand up and join the church, and they're great questions, no doubt. And the word love never appears in any of them. Well, let's think about that. Just noodle on that a little bit to be why that is the way uh, we think about that. So that's, that's what we're going to do today as we, uh, as we look at this text. And so I want to begin today by saying, you know, what, what was life like for those people who gathered on that mountain and, and what's life like for us today? And so I want to begin by asking the question, are, are we living through hard times? Are we? Is it? Is it hard times? It is? Okay. Uh, uh, But we have penicillin. We have air conditioning. We have um, cars, which, you know, is maybe good, maybe bad. I don't know. We have electricity. We have running water. Uh, We have uh, food readily available. We have grocery stores. Um, but I think all of us would sit and also say that, you know, this, this has been a disruptive time, a hard time, a challenging time. Uh, Marty spent some time yesterday talking to somebody who is convinced that the world's about to end, that we're, well, not the end, we're about to go back to the um, dark ages where there are rich landowners and the rest of us are serfs and... Um, Surf, that, that's S-E-R-F, not S-U-R-F, and that, that we are uh, headed towards, you know, famine and that sort of thing. So he's buying sacks, 25-pound sacks of rice and beans to be prepared for, for that. He's that afraid. Now, now, you can laugh at that and you can, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, I mean, he thinks, you know, where are you going to be when you need some rice and beans? So I, you know, the... What that tells me about the time that we're living in is whether you're going to need, you know, 25 pounds of, of, of sacks of rice and beans uh, uh, is neither here nor there. But if people think they need that, or there are people among us who think that's where we're headed, that says a lot, right? So, uh, Luke, put, put my notes up there. So, uh, uh, I, I came across this 
uh, article from uh, David French uh, this week, and he, he said this last week, I was talking with a good friend, and he asked an excellent question. Are these times really as hard as they seem? Or have we lost historical perspective? Does every generation face the challenges we face? I was thinking about this today. You know, my, my dad was born uh, uh, in February of 1930. You know, the stock market crashed in uh, October of 1929. Uh, and by the time he was 15 years old, it had been a world war, his, the, all, you know, just all of those sorts of things. So I think in a depression. So I, I don't really know, but... It's a great question, and immediately brought to my mind an offhand comment that uh, the New York Times' Michelle Goldberg made in a p- podcast this spring, and this is what she said. So, he says, I've referred to it before, but what she said was something like this. 2020 started out like 1974 with an impeachment. I, you know, it's funny about that, because I'd forgotten about that, because some other things have been going on, right? That used to be a big deal. It's not a big deal now. In fact... You know, I bet if you ask most people, somebody's getting impeached somewhere all the time, right? We just love to impeach. So, because uh, we're, could it be we're angry? I don't know. Um, and then it became 1918 with the pandemic, which led to 1929, stock market crash. I don't really think that's a big deal because a lot of y'all have gotten rich off the stock market crash. You know, it dipped and you bought and... Now you're, 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 you're doing well. In fact, when I said that at the 9 o'clock service, a bunch of guys laughed. Cause, and I know they made a lot of money on this. So good for them. That's America. Uh, and then transformed into 1968 with massive urban unrest. Uh, and since that podcast, things have only gotten worse. He said, we moved into 1876, uh, a viciously disputed election. You probably uh, don't know much about the 1876 election. We don't talk about it very much. But much of the trouble that's in America today stems from that. Yeah. G- read up on it sometime. Uh, if you want to understand the roots of... Uh, Uh, so much of the racial tension that we have in America today, the way that election was was settled in 1876 has a lot to do with that. And you just thought, you know, Joe Biden and and Donald Trump were uh, the trouble. 1876 was much worse. Uh, Followed it up with another 1974 second impeachment and then experienced 1975 a lost war and a panicked evacuation. Now, some of y'all lived through this, especially the 1876 one, right? So so the fact of the matter is, are we living through hard times? Yes. Are they the worst times? No. Yes. (laughs) Of course it's the worst times, because I'm living in it, right? And so everything, just all that to say, Uh, When you read the Sermon on the Mount and you think, oh, you know, times were better then, or Jesus is speaking into a peaceful time, what I want you to understand is things were terrible then too. And and, and this message of the kingdom of God, of the breaking in of the good news of Jesus Christ, the the work that that God is doing in and through us, the, the, the teaching that he wants us to absorb and the things that he wants to change about us as he tells us what the kingdom of God is like was in a context not unlike the context we live in now. For instance, next slide. 
One of the things that in chapter 4, right before we get to this, is we read these words. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested. John the Baptist. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. His cousin. His friend. And in a way, if you could say this to some degree, probably Jesus' mentor a little bit too. The one who baptized Jesus, the one who first identifies Jesus publicly anyway, out in front of people as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. This John, who uh, was uh, people were flocking to out in the wilderness, dares to challenge the political structures, the, the, that, that guy, Herod, the king, and as a result of that, he is jailed and is facing martyrdom. So Jesus begins his ministry and begins his preaching and begins his work of, of declaring the kingdom of God. He is here in the midst of that kind of situation. Jesus is willing to start publicly declaring a rival kingdom to the king who has put his kinsman, his beloved uh, friend, John, in jail. So yeah, there's trouble. It's challenging, right? And so uh, there's, a, there's always going to be that context where Jesus is preaching the message of the kingdom uh, in the face of, uh, of other kings who don't really uh, particularly care for that. We read in Matthew 4.23, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what we see here is, is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you that the kingdom of God is here, and I'm going to tell you what the kingdom of God looks like, and I'm going to demonstrate through these healings and through these, uh, these uh, examples and miracles of power what the kingdom of God looks like and what our destiny is, where disease and death is eradicated once and for all. And so that's what we read there at, in, uh, as, uh, at the beginning, right, as the context where he goes to sit on the mountain, gather the crowd, gather his disciples, and preach this message. Well, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, uh, at the, a, a couple of chapters just past the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, and then chapters 8 and 9, he does a bunch of miracles and a bunch of healing. We read almost the same thing that we read in chapter 4. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So what you can't do is, what we tend, what we tend to do is we tend to, tend to take this, this the, as we'll see, the Beatitudes as these individual little things, and we pull them out of the context that Jesus is speaking and teaching in, and we kind of lose the greater picture. Jesus teaches, preaches the Sermon on the Mount in the midst of a hard time, in the midst of a challenging time. We haven't even talked about the Romans yet. Right, so so it is a it is a challenging uh, and stressful time that Jesus is beginning uh, uh, be, beginning his his ministry. Next slide, please, Luke. So, uh, the recipients of the of the sermon who who received this 
uh, sermon. Well, what we read here is uh, that seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, he sat down, and his disciples came to him, right? So the crowds are flocking around him. They are enamored with this Jesus. They, they see miracles. They, they're there for a million different reasons. He, he has called a handful of disciples. They come to him, and he begins uh, his, uh, his ministry, right? Now, um, it is, it, it, sometimes we try to, you know, kind of divide up, you know, the disciples, they were the inner crowd, you know, they knew what was going on, and then there's everybody else. Well, at this stage of the ministry, the disciples are just a tiny bit more aware of who Jesus is than the crowds are, but not much. So I don't want to draw a big line between all the disciples. They were the, in, the insiders there, this, and they're, they're up here up close, and then there's everybody else. It's a mixed bag, right? And it says that when uh, Jesus finished these sayings at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, we read that and we think, of course Jesus had authority. He was the very Son of God, and they're, they're, no wonder they're enamored with that. But when it, don't, don't, don't give the crowds too much credit about this because they're just like us. Jesus teaches with authority. That's the thing about style. Jesus has style. They like his style. You know, I've thought about that. Like, I, I've been tempted at times, you know, to preach with my shirt tail out, a pair of jeans, Birkenstock sandals. I have a little, have a little stool up here with a Diet Coke on it. That would be appealing, wouldn't that? That would say something about my style. Or, you know, I actually have a, uh, I have a clerical robe. There's some style. Some of y'all would like that style better. And some of y'all would like the Diet Coke style better. You know, or a cup of coffee, right? That's the other thing cool pastors, uh, you know, like, uh, like good coffee. That's, you, you see that on all the websites. He likes really good coffee. Yeah, I, I like it. I'm really glad y'all like it because you have to listen to the guy who likes the good coffee, and so it's important that you get caffeinated before you come in here, right? So I, I just think there's, we, we, we look at that and we think, oh, there, that says so much. There's, we, we, we're so attracted to style, and, and we were trained to be attracted to style, and I have my own style. You know, what I would really like is, is to have a man bun, but I just can't pull it off, right? So... So whatever, whatever you, th you think about that is, we, we, are, we are attracted to that. And Jesus has a certain style, and people are attracted to that. Now, Jesus is not about style, as we'll see, and it, it won't be long before the style wears a little thin and the crowds begin to wear a little bit thin. But at this stage of the ministry, there's a lot of people that are coming, and they're really wowed by what's happening. They like the miracles, and, and as we'll see, if we keep going further, they, they'll like the fact that he feeds them and, and that he's, he's challenging the man, he's challenging the authorities and that sort of stuff. But pretty soon, they're going to get tired and bored and impatient, and you know the crowds will thin out a little bit over time. So as, this is at the, at the very outset, probably in some ways at the very peak of his popularity, Jesus is 
sitting down and speaking, right? So one of the things that we notice about this is that, uh, next slide, Luke, is that he sees the crowds. Now, now you, you may be thinking, he's like looking around thinking, wow, I got all these people following me. I need to figure out a way to, to, to talk to them. But you'd be missing that. When, whenever the Gospels tell you that Jesus sees something or he looks at something, you need to pay attention. Jesus sees the angry the bitter, the sick, the afraid, the grieving, the challenged, the bored, the infertile, the dying, those who are undone, the poor, the unemployed, the broken, those who live with broken families and relationships. That's what he sees, right? And so it's not just that he uh, uh, sees that there's a crowd. He sees who's in the crowd. He sees what kind of people are there. Uh, and, and, and you, one of the things that I've, I get so moved when I think about this is that he sits there and he looks into the eyes of those people, people just like you and me, who are dying to hear a word from God, who are dying to know that the kingdom of God is not just some kind of pie in the sky, but that it's real and that it is embodied literally in this one who will sit before these people and declare to them the great news of the kingdom. Because you see, that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus looks at this crowd and he sees sin and death and brokenness and the neediness of these people. And, and he even sees people who are there who don't know that they need what he has to give to them. And yet he sits before them and very patiently unpacks for them the work that God, his Father, has sent him to do. The other thing that you need to see about this is it's in a beautiful setting. Uh, uh, most scholars think this is on a, a hillside, a beautiful grassy hillside overlooking uh, the Sea of Galilee. You know, it's just a, it's just a gorgeous place. It's one of the reasons why we don't put retreat centers in, uh, you know, industrial places, <laughs> that kind of stuff. You don't, I, I, I named some towns at the first service and I offended some people who were from there, but just suffice it to say, some towns in northern Ohio that, that, that are, you know, kind of rust belt places and some towns like south of Richmond that are not that attractive. That, we don't put, our, we don't, we, we don't put our, our, our retreat centers there, do we? We put them in places like Rockbridge. We put them in places like Lake Gaston. They're beautiful and stunning, right? So Jesus is picking a place that is, that is a, 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 a picture of the provision of God and creation as he sits there and as he uh, describes to his followers the, uh, um, the kingdom that he is declaring. And we note here this odd thing is that he sits down to teach. 
back in March of 2020 when we uh, had to close down public worship and we could only have 10 people in the room. Uh, I thought that it was unplanned, but that first Sunday as I got ready to come up here to preach to this empty room, um, I thought that is the dumbest thing to stand up here behind with the pulpit and preach. And, and the 10 people that were in here weren't in here to listen. They were in here to work. They weren't paying any attention to me. <laughs> right? They were, they were focused on, you know, trying to figure out whether the camera was working, whether the sound system was working. They're trying to figure out, you know, who's coming in and out of the door. Let's get the food pantry together. They weren't paying any attention to me. So I'm like, yeah, you know, this is a dumb thing. I'm going to sit down. And just like I was in your living room because, or your TV room or your den, because literally that's, that's what was happening. I was in your, was in your house, right? But Jesus is doing something different here. We read over in, in Luke, uh, when he goes to Nazareth, it says, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. So he stands up to read the scriptures, right? He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. I've all, you know, that, that seems like the ultimate power move to me, you know, like, hey, I'm going to read this, and then he sits down. But that's not what happens. That's what the rabbi did. He would read to the scriptures, standing up, and then he would sit down. Uh, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because the rabbis would teach in the synagogues by being seated. It was the, the, the terminology that was used there is when they sat down to teach, they were sitting in Moses' chair. They were sitting in Moses' seat. And so one of the things that you should see about this is, is that, uh, that just as Moses received the Ten command, Commandments on the top of the mountain, Jesus is on the top of the mountain, sitting, speaking, and so what we should take away from that is what he is communicating by this very setting and by what he's doing is, is that there's a new Moses on the scene. In fact, one greater than Moses who is going to speak to you really, literally, the law of the kingdom of God. He's going to give to you the fulfillment of what went before and how this, the, the, this new Moses is establishing and uh, reorienting the people of God towards the kingdom of God. So this, is, uh, this, this sermon that Jesus preaches here is just not a sermon. It's just not a, a way for him to kind of lay out his vision or, or those sorts of things. It's something much greater than that. There's a new Moses. There is a, a new uh, uh, and renewed kind of sense that God is with us. And the reestablishment, the reworking, the relooking at his kingdom as it comes. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And so as, as we unpack this and as we look at this, that, that's what we need to see and experience uh, just as this crowd is. Because it says he opened his mouth and he taught. He is speaking to them uh, the very words of God, just as Moses received the words of God in the Ten Commandments. Now Jesus is here speaking the very authoritative 
word of God to the people. The mouth of the Lord is opening and revealing to the people what it is, who this one is, and what the kingdom of God looks like. Here's the thing that we, we need to see about this today. The, the, the words that we have from Jesus and this sermon, uh, scholars have debated for years and years and years, as we'll see next week as we begin to look at the Beatitudes, you know, is this something to do or is this something to be? You know, is, is Jesus given us law or is Jesus given us gospel? Yes. Yes. Right? Because what Jesus is doing here is he is saying to us, he is demonstrating to us the very love of God, the very grace of God to us, and what that grace of God, what that love of God, what that work that he is going to do for us, that what that atoning sacrifice is going to mean and how that shapes and directs the way we live. He loves his people so much that he is there among us speaking, seeing us, and applying this truth, the Word of God, to your brokenness, to your heart brokenness, to your grief, to your sadness, to your anger, to your bitterness, to your self-righteousness. All of those things. Because what he is building here is not just individuals who are healed, but a kingdom of people a group of people. One of the things, as I mentioned earlier, I've been thinking about what it means to be a member of the church, what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, to belong to that. And, you know, we're in a bit of a crisis, aren't we? I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a weird situation to try to figure out, you know, exactly who the church is these days because we just, we scattered for so long by necessity, and now we're trying to figure out how uh, to be uh, a, a body, how to be a church again. And that's a good, challenging uh, exercise for us to go through. But I think one of the things that I've discovered about this is that uh, one, of the, one of the flaws in the way the church has functioned historically is uh, what we've told people is, come to the church and we will help you self-actualize. We will help you become your best, your best, best, your best Steve, your best Matt, your best Glenn. That's what we're here to do. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sounds very appealing. But, you know, you don't see that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> what, what you see on the Sermon on the Mount is, now what we're inviting you into is a community, into a kingdom, into a place where we have this uh, authoritative teaching by the Son of God that coheres us together as sinners loved by God and saved by his grace. And so I think what has happened to us is, is we've, we've, it's no wonder because, you know, hey, you can self-actualize a lot of places without having to deal with the messy people that you don't like and disagree with in your church can self-actualize by in front of your screen. You can self-actualize at Ikea on Sunday. <laughs> right? 
You can self-actualize at the lake or the river or the beach. Feels pretty good, right? And the coffee's better, right? But what Jesus is doing and what the Sermon on the Mount tells us is, no, he is, he is declaring to us, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is how you get into the kingdom of God, and this is how you live as citizens of people in this community that he's building. That's great news for us because being a part of this community is one of the essential ways Jesus loves us. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we need to hear this today. Uh, just as there were angry, bored, cynical, hurting checked out people there on uh, that mountain. Uh, They're in this room today, and yet Jesus, so are you, and you see them, you see us, and you are faithful to declare to us uh, the truth of your kingdom. And so I pray today that uh, you'd help us by your Spirit. Give us the power to believe, or give us the power to care that uh, you love us and that you have come for us. Renew us, change us, Uh, Give us uh, courage uh, to take you at your word and to be shaped uh, by it today. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And if you can get self-actualized at Ikea, maybe we should have meatballs with our coffee out there, right? Wouldn't that that be a a good thing? Yeah. Um, so in light of that, we really need to confess our sins. So uh, would you uh, confess your sins with me by using this confession that's uh, printed in the bulletin? Pray with me. All your loving kindness is in your Son. I bring him to you in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay for my debts of wrong. Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgression, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride, his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, his holy life for my unchaste ways, his righteousness for my dead works, his death for my life. Amen. Believers, hear these words of encouragement. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Please stand with us as we continue to worship.